0: chapter 17 of the story of the atlantic telegraph this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the story of the atlantic telegraph by henry m field chapter 17 recovery of the lost cable part 1 though the great eastern was still lying in the little harbor of hearts content Casting her mighty shadow on its tranquil waters, she was not content with her amazing victory, but sighed for another greater still. Though she had done enough to be laid up for a year, she still had one more test of her prowess, to recover the cable of 1865, which had been lost in the middle of the Atlantic. So eager were all for this second trial of their strength, that in less than five days two of the ships, the Albany and the Terrible, the vanguard of the telegraphic fleet, were on their way back to mid-ocean. Though so it was only Friday, the 27th of July, that they had reached land, they left early Wednesday morning, the first day of August. The Great Eastern was detained a week longer. She had to lay in immense supplies of coal. Anticipating this want, six ships had been dispatched from Cardiff and Wales weeks before to await the arrival of the fleet. One of these foundered at sea. The others arrived out safely, and hardly had the Great Eastern cast anchor before they were alongside, ready to fill her bunkers. So ample was the provision that, when she went to sea a few days after, she had nearly 8,000 tons of coal on board. At the same time, she had to receive some 600 miles of the Cable of 1865, which had been shipped from England in the Medway. The latter was now brought alongside, and the whole was transferred into the main tank of the Great Eastern, from which it was to be paid out in case the lost end were recovered. At length all these preparations were completed, and on Thursday, the 9th of August, the Great Eastern and the Medway put to sea. The governor of Newfoundland, who had come around from St. John's and been received with the honors due his rank, accompanied them in the lily down the broad expanse of Trinity Bay, and then bore away for St. John's while the Great Eastern and Medway kept on their course to join their companions in the middle of the Atlantic. They had a little over six hundred miles to run to the fishing ground, and made it in three days. On Sunday noon they came in sight of the Point of rendezvous, and soon with glasses made out the Albany and the Terrible, which had arrived a week before and placed buoys to mark the line of the cable and then, like giant sea birds with folded wings, sat watching their prey. The sea was running high, so the boats could not come off, but the Albany signaled that she had not toiled for nothing, that she had once hooked the cable but lost it in rough weather. The history of this first attempt, though brief, was cheering. When the Albany left Heart's content, Captain Moriarty went in her. He had been in the Great Eastern the year before, and saw where the cable went down, and had had his eye on the spot ever since he claimed with captain anderson that he could go straight to it and place the ship within half a mile of where it disappeared at this old sailors shook their heads and said they'd like to see him do it no man could come within two or three miles of any given place in the ocean yet the result proved the exactness of his observations with unerring eye he went straight to the spot and set his buoys as exactly as a fisherman sets his nets in the albany also had gone mr temple of mr canning's staff the ship had been fitted with a complete set of buoys and apparatus for grappling And he was full of ambition to recover the cable before the great eastern should come up in this he had nearly proved successful they had caught it once and raised it a few hundred fathoms from the bottom and buoyed it but rough weather came on and tore away the buoy so that the cable went down again carrying two miles of rope this was a disappointment but still as their first attempt was only a feeler the result was encouraging it showed that they had found the right place that the cable was there that it had not run away nor been floated off by those undercurrents that exist in the imagination of some wise men of the sea, nor that it was so embedded in the ooze of the deep as to be beyond reach or recovery. All this was cheering, but as it promised to be a more difficult job than they had supposed, they were glad when the Great Eastern hove in sight that Sunday noon. The next morning Captain Moriarty and Mr. Temple came on board, and after reporting their experience the chief officers of the expedition held a council of war before opening the campaign. The fleet was all together. the weather was favorable, and it was determined at once to proceed to business. As the attempt is now to be renewed on a grand scale, the reader may wish some further details of the means employed to ensure success. As nothing in this whole enterprise has excited such astonishment, nothing merits a more careful history. When it was first proposed to drag the bottom of the Atlantic for a cable lost in waters two and a half miles deep, the project was so daring that it seemed to be almost a war of the titans upon the gods. Yet never was anything undertaken less in the spirit of reckless desperation. The cable was recurred as a city is taken by siege, by slow approaches, and the sure and inevitable result of mathematical calculation. Every point was studied beforehand, the position of the broken end, the depth of the ocean, the length of rope needed to reach the bottom, and the strength required to lift the enormous weight. To find the place was a simple question of nautical astronomy, a calculation of latitude and longitude. It seemed providential that, when the cable broke on the 2nd of August, 1865, it was a few minutes after noon, the sun was shining brightly, and they had just taken a perfect observation. This made it much easier to go back to the place again. The waters were very deep, but that they could touch bottom and even grapple the cable was proved by the experiments the year before. But could any power be applied which should lift it without breaking and bring it safely on board? This was a simple question of mechanics. Professor Thompson had made a calculation that in raising the cable from a depth of two-and-a-half miles, there would be about ten miles of its length suspended in the water. Of course, it was a very nice matter to graduate the strain so as not to break the cable, for this it had been suggested that two or three ships should grapple it at once, and lifting it together, ease the strain at any one point, a method of meeting the danger that was finally adopted with success. With such preparations, let us see how all this science and seamanship and engineering are applied, the ships are now all together in the middle of the atlantic the first point is achieved they have found the place where the broken cable lies they have laid their hands on the bottom of the ocean and felt of it and know that it is there the next thing is to draw a line over it to mark its course for in fogs and dark nights it cannot be traced by observations the watery line is therefore marked by a series of buoys a few miles apart which are held in position by heavy mushroom anchors let down to the bottom by a huge buoy rope which is fastened to the top by a heavy chain each buoy is numbered and has on the top a long staff with a flag and a black ball over it which can be seen at a distance thus the ships ranging around in a circuit of many miles can keep in sight this chain of sentinels the buoy which marks the spot where they wish to grapple has also a lantern placed upon it at night which gleams afar upon the ocean having thus fixed their bearings the great eastern stands off north or south according to the wind or current three or four miles from where the cable lies and then, casting over the grapnel, drift slowly down upon the line as ships going into action reef their sails and drift under the enemy's guns. The fishing tackle is on a gigantic scale. The hooks, or grapnels, are huge weapons armed with teeth like titanic harpoons to be plunged into this submarine monster. The fishing line is a rope six and a half inches round and made of twisted hemp and iron, consisting of forty-nine galvanized wires, each bound with manila the whole capable of bearing a strain of thirty tons of this heavy rope there are twenty miles on board the ships the albany carrying five and the great eastern and the medway seven and a half miles each of course it is not the easiest thing in the world to handle such a rope but it is paid out by machinery passing over a drum and the engine works so smoothly that it runs out as easily as ever a fisherman's line was reeled off into the sea as it goes out freely the strain increases every moment The rope is so ponderous that the weight mounts up very fast, so that by the time it is two thousand fathoms down, the strain is equal to six or seven tons. The tension, of course, is very great, and not unattended with danger. What if the rope should break? If it should snap on board, it would go into the sea like a cannon shot. Such was the tension on the long line, that once, when the splice between the grapnel rope and the buoy rope drew, the end passed along the wheels with terrific velocity, and flying in the air over the bow, plunged into the sea. But the rope is well made and holds firmly an enormous weight it takes about two hours for the grapnel to reach the bottom but they can tell when it strikes the strain eases up and then as the ship drifts it is easy to see that it is not dragging through the water but over the ground i often went to the bow says mr field and sat on the rope and could tell by the quiver that the grapnel was dragging on the bottom two miles under us and thus with its fishing line set the great ship moves slowly down over where the cable lies As the grapnel drags on the bottom, one of the engineer's staff stands at the dynamometer to watch for the moment of increasing strain. A few hours pass, and the index rises to eight, ten, or twelve tons, sure token that there is something at the end of the line. It may be the lost cable, or a sunken mast or spar, the fragment of a wreck that went down in a storm that swept the Atlantic a hundred years ago. And now the engine is set in motion to haul in. As the rope comes up, it passes over a five-foot drum, every revolution bringing up three fathoms thus it takes some hours to haul it over two miles length perhaps at last to find nothing at the end success in hooking the cable depends on the accuracy of their observations these were sometimes verified in a remarkable manner when the nights were very dark and thick with fog so that they could not see the stars above nor their lights on the ocean they had to go almost by the sense of feeling yet so exactly had they taken their bearings that they could almost grope over the grounds with their hands A singular proof of this was given one night, when, just as the line began to quiver, showing that the cable had been hooked, one of the buoys, which had not been seen in the darkness, thumped against the side of the ship. So exactly had it been placed over the prescribed line, that the ship struck the buoy just as the grapnel struck the cable. The accident, which startled them at first, when it occurred in the gloom of night, furnished the strongest proof of the accuracy of their observations, and the officers were very proud of it, as they well might be, as a victory in nautical astronomy. These different experiments revealed some secrets of the ocean. Its bottom proved to be generally ooze, a soft slime. When the rope went down, one or two hundred fathoms at the end would trail the sea floor, and when it came up this was found coated with mud, very fine and soft like putty, and full of minute shells. But it was not all ooze at the bottom of the sea, even on this telegraphic plateau. There were hidden rocks, perhaps not cliffs and ledges, but at least scattered boulders lying on that mighty plain. Sometimes the strain on the dynamometer would suddenly go up three or four tons, and then back again, as if the grapnel had been caught and broken away. Once it came up with two of its hooks bent, as if it had come in contact with a huge rock. At one time it brought up in the mud a small stone half the size of an almond, and another a fragment as large as a brick. This was a piece of granite. Friday, August 17th, was a memorable day in the expedition, for the cable was not only caught but brought to the surface, where it was in full sight of the whole ship, and yet finally escaped. The day before, the line had been cast over at about two o'clock, and struck the ground a little before five. After dragging a couple of hours, the increasing strain showed that they had grappled the prize, and they began to haul in, but soon ceased and held on till morning. Then the engine was set in motion again, and slowly but steadily the ponderous rope came up from the deep. By half-past ten o'clock, Friday morning, twenty-three hundred fathoms had come on board, and but fifteen or twenty remained. Then was the critical moment and they paused before giving a last pull. Such was the eagerness of all that the diver of the ship, Clark, begged to be allowed to plunge down twenty fathoms to lay his hand on the prize and be sure that it was there. But patience yet a few minutes. A few more strokes of the engine, and the sea serpent shows himself, a long black snake with a white belly. On the appearance of the cable, says Dean in his diary of the expedition, we were all struck with the fact that one half of it was covered with ooze, staining in a muddy white, while the other half was in just the state in which it left the tank, with its tarred surface and strands unchanged, which showed that it lay in the sand only half-embedded. The strain on the cable gave it a twist, and it looked as if it had been painted spirally black and white. This disposes of the oft-repeated assertion that we should not be able to pull it up from the bottom, because it would be embedded in the ooze. The appearance of the cable worked a tremendous hurrah from all on board. They cheered as English sailors are apt to cheer when the flag of an enemy is struck in battle, but their exultation came too soon. The strain on the cable was already mounting, up to a dangerous point. Captain Anderson and Mr. Canning were standing on the bow, and saw that the strands were going. They hastened men to its relief, but it was too late. Before they could put stoppers on it to hold it, it broke close to the grapnel and sunk to the bottom. It had been in sight for just five minutes, and was gone. Instantly the feeling of exultation was turned to one of disappointment, and almost of rage, at the treacherous monster that lifted up its snaky head from the sea as if to mock its captors, and instantly dived to the silence and darkness below. It was a cruel disappointment, yet when they came to think soberly there was no cause for despair, but rather for new confidence and hope. They had proved what they could, but this detained them in the middle of the Atlantic for two weeks more. It were idle to relate all the attempts of those two weeks. Every day brought its excitement, Whenever the grapnel caught, there was a suspense of many hours till it was brought on board. Several times they seemed on the point of success. Tuesdays after that fatal Friday, on Sunday, August 19th, they caught the cable again and brought it up within a thousand fathoms of the ship and buoyed it. But Monday and Tuesday were too rough to work, and all their labor was in vain. Thus it was a constant battle with the elements. Sometimes the wind blew fiercely and drove them off their course. Sometimes the buoys broke adrift and had to be pursued and taken. Once or twice the boatswain's mate, a brave fellow by the name of Thornton, was lowered in ropes over the bow of the ship and let down astride of a buoy, and though it spun round with him like a top and his life was in danger, he held on and fastened a chain to it, by which it was swung on board. The continued bad weather was the chief obstacle to success. Engineers had often grappled for cables in the North Sea and the Mediterranean, but there they could look for at least a few days when the sea would be at rest. But in the Atlantic it was impossible to calculate on good weather for twenty-four hours. For nearly four weeks that they were at sea, they had hardly four days of clear sunshine without wind. Often the ocean was covered with a driving mist, and the ships groping about like blind giants, kept blowing their shrill fog trumpets or firing guns as signals to their companions that they were still there. Occasionally the sun shone out from the clouds and gave them hope of better success. Once or twice we find, in the private journal kept by Mr. Field, that it was too calm there was not wind enough to drift the ship over the cable, so that the rope hung up and down from the bow without dragging. One Sunday night, he remembered, when the deep was hushed to a Sabbath stillness, the moon was shining brightly, and the ships floating over a sea of glass, that suggested thoughts of a better world than this. Such times gave them fresh hopes that might be disappointed on the morrow. Once, however, the Albany, which had been off a few miles fishing on its own hook, suddenly appeared in the night, reporting a victory, all on board the Great Eastern were startled by the firing of guns. It was a little after midnight and Mr. Field had gone below, worn out with the long suspense and anxiety, when Captain Anderson came rushing to his stateroom with tidings that the cable was recovered. Both hurried on deck, and sure enough, there was the Albany bearing down upon them, with her crew cheering in the wildest manner. The gallant temple had conquered it at last, but the next morning brought a fresh disappointment. They had indeed got hold of the cable and brought its end on board, and afterward buoyed it, but when the Great Eastern went for it, It proved to be only a fragment some two miles long, which had been broken off in one of the previous grapplings. However, they hauled it in and kept it with pride as their first trophy from the sea. And so the days and weeks wore on. It was near the end of August, and still the prize was not taken. The courage of the men did not fail, but they were becoming worn out. The tension on their nerves of this long suspense was terrible. On Tuesday, August twenty-eighth, Mr. Temple was brought on board from the Albany, very ill. He was worn out with constant watching. Their resources, too, must in time be exhausted. On the evening of the twenty-ninth, Captain Comerrill, of the Terrible, came on board and reported the condition of his ship. He was one of the very best officers in the fleet, full of zeal, courage, and activity, having a good right hand in his first officer, Mr. Curtis, and always kept up a brave heart, even in the darkest days. Footnote A. Captain Anderson, in a letter published after the return to England, says, Every officer and man of the expedition will have pleasant recollection of the cheerful zeal of Captain Comeril, V.C., and the officers of Her Majesty's Ship Terrible. Captain Comeril frequently visited us in his boats, both in high seas and in calms, and his cheery way of saying, You'll do it yet, what can I do, and I'll do it, was truly characteristic of him. The officers of the Terrible would do anything for their captain, and entered hardly into the object of the voyage. Such a tribute from one brave commander to another is most honorable to both in the same letter he recognizes also the services rendered by the captains of the other ships i shall do but scant justice to commanders prowls and bat r n and captains eddington and harris mercantile marine of the medway and albany if i recall the three weeks spent upon the grappling ground where we were often separated by fog gale or darkness yet whenever day dawned or the fog cleared there the squadron were to be seen converging from different points toward the marked buoy a small spot looking no bigger than a man's hat on the surface of the ocean unless all had concentrated their minds and watched their ships and compasses night and day no such beautiful illustration of nautical science could have been possible the vessels of the squadron, keeping always together and commanded by men who knew the importance of keeping close enough to begin work whenever it was possible, and yet to avoid collision in fog, was of the greatest importance. And we owe much to that invaluable system of signalling by night and day, invented by Captain COLUMN, R.N., which enabled us, even in dark nights when two or three miles apart, to communicate or ascertain anything we desired. End footnote. But his supplies were nearly exhausted. He had been out four weeks, and his coal was almost gone, and his men were on half rations, so he must leave the fishing ground for fresh supplies. It was a painful necessity. He mourned his fate like a brave officer who is ordered away in the midst of a battle, but he submitted only with the determination to take in ammunition, and to come back in a few days to renew the struggle. Accordingly, the Terrible left the same evening for St. John's. End of chapter 17, part 1. Recorded by Alexey Talander www.bookbanter.net